Hey guys, welcome back to Buns of Knowledge Podcast, where we get deep and have fun with our conversations on self-love, self-awareness, and healing all around. I'm Casey, your host for this season, and I'm so excited to be here with you all, so let's all join in on this episode. So, Dr. McMillan, we're recording now. Sorry, Teddy McMillan, we're recording. All right. <laughs> she calls you uncle. All right, that's that's cool. That's cool. Absolutely. But I, I feel like, you, you know, anyone that worked hard to get, you know, that doctor in front of their name deserves to be called by it every once in a while, you know? Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, uh, you know, it's something I definitely, uh, when I'm looking at the process, it's something I look back on and say, I'm glad I did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think more importantly, some things we'll talk about today, I think, uh, will help kind of like like center that in a place where people can really use the information. Because to me, it's not really about the degree, it's about the experience. Um, mm-hmm. So a degree doesn't validate anything. It just, it's just a piece of paper. Um, but unfortunately in this world, those piece of, pieces of paper can open doors for you. Um, but also people use those titles um, as a kind of a, a way to move power around. And that's, that's one thing I really don't like doing. I like just being who I am. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, used to be a nappy headed kid from Compton, but I don't have any hair on my head anymore, but uh, <laughs> I'm just Eloise and Du Bois baby boy. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> that's good. I'm, I'm going to do a, a short introduction here. I just want to introduce you to the listeners. Um, so I will start off by saying we have uh, Dr. Dubois, Teddy McMillan here, um, author of the world's easiest book on becoming anti-racist, strategies for countering racism in the 21st century. I see it here. How's it going? How's it going, Teddy? It's going fantastic. How about yourself? Pretty good, pretty good. You know, thanks for taking the time to to, to talk with us about this topic. You know, it's something that uh, I feel be like very important for 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 listeners because this is this is a topic that I feel like is on the back of people's minds, but is rarely talked about. Right, right. So I see, I see you have the book. I just I just said the name. The world sees this book. I'm becoming anti-racist. Got five stars on Amazon. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I gotta um <clears throat> I gotta I gotta look more into this. I I didn't know about this one, but I'll definitely definitely check this out. Adding to cart as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> that'll definitely that that'll definitely uh uh you know be something that we that we'll be excited about. You know, thanks a lot for being uh allowing me to be on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming. Thanks for 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 agreeing. So I kind of I kind of just want to talk about. Um, well, first I want to talk about this book. 
on becoming anti-racist. That's that's interesting. How do you, you teach someone to be anti-racist? Do you want to just go over what what this book is about? Wow. Well, thanks a lot for for asking that question. Um, one of the things that that I experienced as a kid growing up was, I think I learned about seven or eight years old that um, there was a difference in how people were treated based on the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. I was sitting here at, in our home um, in Compton, California with my family. And we sat up and we watched an episode of Roots. And I'll never forget um, seeing Kuta Kente, um, like taken from his community in West Africa and basically brought into you know, a worse, the worst possible condition you can be in, which is in captivity. And that, and that bothered me. And it, it made me feel, because at that point, I grew up in a, in a community where it was generally like 90% African-American. Um, I didn't have a lot of contact with people that were non-African-American. Uh, my school was you know, nearly 100% African-American. My teachers were all African-American. And my experience in elementary school was one that was rich in culture, um, just something that I, I look back on and just, just know that I'm grateful and um, just show much gratitude for that experience. We learned so much. So as I began to kind of like navigate through the world, there were instances that, and things that happened in my life that made me think about, wow, the color of my skin has caused this particular thing to happen in my life. Or the color of my skin has called people has caused people to, to treat me a certain way, and I be, always begin to kind of relate that back to that experience I saw, saw Kuta Kente go through in that movie that I saw mm -hmm. in 1977. I'm a little older than y'all, but uh, <laughs> I guess I'm aging myself. But but it, it was based on that, and not just the moments when I was a kid walking home from ele not elementary school but junior high school one time. I remember getting thrown to the ground and putting a chokehold by a police officer. And I didn't understand like why that that happened. And they used to always drive on the side of us and say, you know, you, you need to go home. If you don't go home, we're going to call the paddy wagon. We'll haul all the other jail, stuff like that. Just just accosting us for no apparent reason. But I had a great middle school teacher by the name of Mr. Davis. Mm -hmm. who actually showed the movie to us in class and he began to break some of the the, 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 the kind of the concepts of racism down to me that made me kind of understand it from a different perspective. I remember him saying, you know, uh, Macmillan, you know, you need to understand, man, that, you know, it's a system. It's not the people, it's the system behind the reason why they act the way they do. And mm -hmm. I didn't really understand that until later on in life. So that was just an incident um, that happened to me as a kid. And I began to think about, well, there must be other kids going through this too. And how do we really get a, a firm grasp of what racism is without really understanding it? So there are other incidents that happened. I became a teacher, saw myself teaching from a curriculum that did not reflect anybody in the classroom. And a kid challenged me in 1999 and he told me, he said, why are we reading this garbage? These books don't have nothing to do with me. And I had to tell him that was disrespectful for him to say that in the classroom, but then having a, a deeper conversation with him, I began to understand it. So what I did, I started getting books in the classroom that reflected them. These were high school students. I was in my late 20s. And these kids were 17, 18 years old. Mm -hmm. I started getting books that reflected them culturally um, by authors who could speak to their experience and they could relate to those stories in the book. So um, brought in Walter Mosley books, uh, Maya Angelou, uh, uh, Luis Rodriguez, Always Running. 
Mm -hmm. I was teaching literature and social studies at the time. Kids got really excited about reading. And I didn't realize that I was only addressing racism from a cultural perspective. I was not really changing policy or changing at the institutional level. So I began to think about, you know, what happened when I left that group in 1999? Was the next teacher going to just go right back to the regular curriculum? So I began to believe that the system was bigger than just that individual change that I made in the classroom. Um, because I didn't make institutional change, it began to make me think about, well, was I really effective? So in the book, I, I break racism down into five different categories. And I give you at the beginning of each chapter a story that relates to that particular um, layer of racism. As we work through um, the activities in the book, we began to understand how that particular layer affects us in our world. And then we began to think about how do we break it down from within that layer and dismantle racism from within the layers operating. So that's the whole concept of the book. Um, mm -hmm. I go through those five layers and I basically break it down and, and create opportunities for us to have some discourse about what racism really is for the, you know, the whole goal of being able to dismantle it, get it out of humanity's way so that we can all enjoy life as it uh, is supposed to be, right? And I think, you know, um, being able to encourage other people and teach them about what racism is um, in ways that are practical, that make sense, and giving them strategies on how to dismantle it when they see it operating. So that's the whole purpose of the book. Okay. That sounds very interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, wow, so, okay, so five layers. What, is there a reason it's only five? Yeah, so what I try to do is um, kind of separate them and almost like when you're building a house, right? You, you don't just bring a, a home builder in and have him do all the work. You bring in, you know, you might bring in the person who's gonna lay down the foundation, then you bring in your plumber, um, then you bring in your framer, then you bring in your electrician, then you bring in um, the person who's gonna put up drywall, then you bring in your flooring person, then you bring in all the roofer. All these other people come, they're specialized in these particular areas. Well, mm -hmm. if I ever found that there was a, an issue with that process or that system, the best thing for me to do is to look at that individual person responsible for that system. So if there's an issue with plumbing, I would go to the plumber and say, hey, what's going on here with the plumbing situation? Let's look at you know, construction code and figure out what the issue is. That plumber is gonna be the authority in that area. So that process is very complex when we look at it from a, a bird's eye view, but we break it down into its individual components. It's easier for us to understand how all these components overlap and they work um, with each other. So kind of using that concept or using that analogy, I break racism into ideological layer, which I think is the first layer, which is establishing that there's a difference in people based on the color of their skin or their cultural experience or their cultural identity. That's mm -hmm. ideological racism. And I can, in the book, and, I, and I'll relate that back to some very, very basic things that are still operating mm -hmm. in our world right now and how that works. So ideological layer, and then what they did establish structures or systems, like this is the big layer with laws and constitutions. And when you have laws and constitution, which really sets the standard, sets the rules in play, then out of that, you have institutions that are formed out of those structures. So institutional um, racism is the third layer. Mm -hmm. The fourth layer is cultural racism, which really deals with ideas and beliefs. Um, these are social norms. These are standards. These are 
And, and, and what I talk about in the book a little bit is how um, people that are non-white live in, in, a, in a, we operate in a deficit position because the standard of who, um, what humanity is, is always compared to a, a European, uh, European standard. And then mm -hmm. lastly, I get into interpersonal or individual racism, where we see acts of violence, we see people um, that are prejudiced, they use stereotypes, like I was just explaining to you, kind of that incident that happened to me, mm -hmm. police officer when I was 12 years old, that's a sign of interpersonal or individual racism. One individual um, using power um, to discriminate um, and to bring harm to another person. So um, when I break it down, if I don't see how that officer in 1982 um, mm -hmm. was, um, functioning or operating from a the cultural or ideological layer of racism, I won't be able to un truly understand what his intent was and what was the motivation behind the action that he took um, to put me in a chokehold and throw me to the ground. So addressing it from an individual or interpersonal layer is not necessarily changing the problem or changing the, uh, changing the reality for people that are non-white until we really look into what is what is you know, what is really influencing the behavior? Where's it coming from? So that, mm -hmm. that leads us back to the cultural, which is the belief and leads us back to the ideology, which is also the beliefs. And then we can break it down from that perspective. We can look at, well, how can we really change it? And, um, and I'll have time to explain two very, very, very uh, important things that we need to look at to see how ideology still operates in today's world. And I can share those examples um, with you before um, before we're done with the interview. Oh, definitely. I'll definitely let's talk more about that. Okay. <clears throat> um, let me know if you can hear me, hear me right. Can yeah, you hear me? Yep. Okay, perfect. Yep. Perfect. I'm going to do clear. Um, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I, I kind of want to, I want to talk about the, the, the fourth layer you mentioned, cultural, cultural racism and how that is like, um, that's something that, that's that I, I feel like more common, you know, these days. Uh, I think it's very interesting how you said that. <clears throat> how you said that uh, we're society is on on a, like a, a European standard, I believe. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I've uh, I've always I've always thought that in a in a sense. Um, do you want to elaborate more about that one? Yes, I can. So when we're, when we're looking at cultural racism, we're really looking at the norms and shared beliefs that we have as a society mm -hmm. and how um, practices reinforce racial stereotypes. And I'll give, you, I'll give you a couple of examples, right? So because these beliefs are, are, are um, of the group in power, the group in power begins to set the standard of, uh, on how we live, right? So that, you know, that, and that's something that, that is, we see a lot through the media. Um, mm -hmm. We see a lot of that coming through the imagery that we see. Our brains take in four to 5,000 different images a day. And think how many times we, look, we turn on the news and we see um, African-Americans, for instance, or people of color uh, portrayed in a negative way, right? So how much, of, how much of that is being kind of like stored in our subconscious mind? Yeah. Um, so one of the things we want to do is be able to break down um, by being intentional about how we think about racism, 
and be able to break down these, these, these cultural norms and begin to understand that um, it's important for us to be able to recognize when they're operating. For instance, when I was a assistant principal at a high school, um, sometimes I had kids come to me and say, oh, Mr. McMillan, I need you to help me because this teacher is, is prejudiced. This teacher is racist. And I'm like, wait a minute, you can't throw words and, and make claims like that. What do you mean? Well, mm -hmm. I said something in the classroom and she said something to me, but the other kid was talking in the classroom and they said something and she didn't do anything about it or he didn't do anything about it. And I said, well, can you, can you document what happened so I can, you know, at least discuss this with the teacher? Cause I want to have a conversation about like, you know, like, you know, how can we come to come up with a, a better way of being able to communicate in the classroom? And if you are being targeted, then the teacher needs to be informed on, you know, those actions in the classroom and how they make you feel. So, mm -hmm. um, and having a lot of these conversations, it might be something as simple as a kid responding by saying words like, uh, 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 and uh, huh. Are, are you going to go, are, are you going to turn on home again tomorrow? Uh, huh. That's not proper English. You're not supposed to use that type of language here. You're supposed to say yes. Well, if the kid is saying uh-huh at home and that's acceptable, then we don't say that this is not proper English. What we do say is things like, well, you know, what I want you to be able to do is like, let's, let's try to be, um, let's, let, let's, let's discuss like how we're gonna communicate with each other in the classroom. And I know we communicate sometimes outside of the classroom and it's appropriate for those environments, but there's gonna be you know, times when you wanna make sure that you're able to kind of switch the way you communicate in order to be effective and to be able to communicate with others because they're gonna view you a certain way if you use this type of like, you know, this language. Mm -hmm. So what's happened in the classroom is that this child begins to believe that that's improper way of communicating. That's dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. So if a teacher is aware that, um, I say uh-huh in, 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 you know, at home, I say uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, that's how we communicate. And what yeah. happens is if we don't understand that and we can't be culturally responsive to the families and communities we serve, we can become knowledgeable on how we communicate. How can we bridge the gap? Because we can't say that's not a proper way of communicating because it is because it's effective. So it's things like that or um, watching. Um, as a kid, I watched The Rifleman, I watched The Big Valley, I watched Bonanza. I've seen image after image after image of powerful white men with guns played out on the television set all of my life. So what does that do to me when I see a white man driving down the street in a black and white car or he gets out the car and he's about to give me a ticket? How, do, how does that... <laughs> How does that affect me biologically? Does my body become a little bit more um, kind of like in, in, in fight or flight stage or, or is my heart beating a lot faster? Because these images now begin to ruminate in my brain as to who this individual is. So from a, from a biological standpoint, we know that racism affects us biologically, not just mentally, it's not just you know, somebody's gonna discriminate against you. No, it, our bodies begin to respond to that in a biological way. So to begin to understand cultural racism, we have to begin to understand the kind of the, the, the cultural makeup of our, um, the students that we serve in the classroom if we're in a classroom setting or our employees or our colleagues. I mean, if you think about it, you know, we go to, 
you know, it's very simple things. When you go to potlucks in your job, mm-hmm. is there a such thing as the barbecue man? No. Nope. Not, there's, not there's, really. and, and I've heard people make jokes like, you know, oh, Mr. McMillan, hey, Teddy, man, hey, hey, let's bring some grits. Let's bring some grits to the potluck. Hmm. We even joke on ourselves about stuff like that. Yeah. But that stuff ain't funny to me, man, because I understand how that mm-hmm. is damaging to myself, is mm-hmm. dehumanizing to me <clears throat> and other people. So, and when I use the term dehumanizing, and this is one thing Paulo Freire talks about, he talks about like dehumanization is not just about the victim, it's about also the oppressor, because the oppressor is being less human when they use oppression to discriminate and hurt other people. So our goal is to use um, this concept of humanity in a way that will underst- help us understand that it's a mutual process as we begin to move more towards humanity. Mm-hmm. Right? So those are things we talk about in cultural racism. Um, and we began to look at it from a, through a lens of a person who is aware that the media is one of the, the main conduits for delivering this imagery. We also mm-hmm. began to understand that we've been socially normed um, into believing that the European uh, concepts and ideas and culture is better than other cultures. Subconsciously, mm-hmm. we began to think that. Um, mm-hmm. and we began to see so much of it come through our textbooks, through our educational programs. Just like I explained earlier, if, if someone say this, these are American classic books and you look at the list of authors on there and there's no one who looks like you, you're going you're gonna to clearly think, well, what does that mean? One thing can mean that, that your people are not even significant enough to have someone who look like you as a part of the curriculum. And here's another thing. These are things that I began to think about over time. You can walk into any classroom or any high school across America and you ask them, can I see a menu of the, the modern languages that you offer for students to take? Because most of the time in high school, you got to take two years of a they used to call it foreign language. They call it modern language now, right? Okay. So th- these are where the tricks come in. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying foreign language, they say modern language. There's not one board of education across the country that has approved any African languages at all. Wow. And the reason is they just don't think that we're significant enough. They don't wow. think that those languages have any value in the world. And we believe that right? That when we've kind of like, like unconsciously accepted that as being the norm. Mm. So those are things I talk about. And this doesn't have to just, I'm not just focused on it from an African perspective, but there's a very specific reason why the African languages aren't there. Because that doesn't serve the ideology, which is the first layer of racism. Mm -hmm. So if you dehumanize people and you make them believe that they're less than and you create policy and statutes and laws to make them feel that they're less than, then you can never make these people believe that they're equal to you. Because if they're equal to you, then they need you have to accept them for their few, what they bring to, to, to humanity. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta accept their 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 full humanity and begin to give them the same value that you give yourself. And that would totally disrupt, in my opinion, the way American culture um, operates. Mm, wow, that's 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 deep. Um, 
but yeah, I can't, I can't help but to agree. Can't help but to agree, especially. I, I had no idea about the the modern language part. That was very interesting. Right there. So what's the what's the solution to that? Wow, that's a that's another deep question, man. So, um, because I know cultural, when it comes to cultural racism, yeah, right, it is so deeply inrooted and it's been inrooted for like for centuries. Yes, and I know that. I understand that um, the media plays a big part in it too. You know, it plays a big part in it of how of how uh, different cultures are portrayed, how different races are portrayed. You know, most people don't realize it. You know, but it does affect them uh, subconsciously, like you like you mentioned. Like for example, you know, um, most like I, I liked how you mentioned how you grew up watching shows where it's like strong white men with guns, right? So right. subconsciously, like, what does that do for you when you see one pull up in a, in a black and white, you know? That's right. And also, it could go other way for, for, um, for us when we see, like, uh, black characters being portrayed as, you know, comic, comedic relief. Yes. You know, yes. Or is like being portrayed as ignorant or, or gangster. Yep. You know? Um, and subconsciously, that kind of affects the way I, I believe how uh, Black people view themselves. I feel like media is like one of the biggest, one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest factors on that. And subconsciously, you know, like black males grow up thinking like, okay, we have to be, you know, this is how yeah. we have to portray ourselves in order to be considered black. <laughs> that's deep. That's deep, man. You're right. You know, I agree with you totally. And I think that's where we find um, a lot of self-hate begin to develop mm-hmm. because you cannot be what you were not created to be. Mm-hmm. You have to, you almost like you have to relinquish and do away with your blackness in order to be accepted in the world because so many things that are that are considered dark or black are considered negative and evil. Whereas the world has set it up where um, you believe that something on the contrary to that, that is white, it's pure, it's great, it's intelligent, it's, it's successful. And so mm-hmm. much of that has been fed into our minds. So you talked about solutions. So one of the things that I, that I think, and I'm going to, kind of tie um, culture back to ideology because I think um, ide- um, culture, the culture is fed through ideology. And if we go back to, and I'm not pointing the finger in any particular group, but this, this is what the history tells us. The documentation is there. Mm-hmm. That in Portugal in, in the 1400s, we know that they became very astute at building um, ships. They, they wanted to go down the, co- the coast of West Africa they were trying to find a, a route to get around to the eastern part of Africa, but they couldn't go inland because, and these, these you know, the Port- Portuguese were, were Christian people, right? The Catholic, you know, Catholic church there. So they needed to move and find Christian allies in order for them to do trade in India. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't go inland because uh, a lot of the, the, the inland places there in Africa were, were um, there were Muslim. So 
they they went past the a place called K Bojador in the 1440s, and they were very successful at getting down to as far as Guinea. And when they got there, they started you know getting resources from Guinea and taking them back to Portugal. They ended up capturing some some West Africans from there and taking them back to Portugal. And what what began to form is they saw the value in um, trading human beings. And we know it because of the documentation. So in 1441, mm-hmm. we see um, St. Eugene IV. Uh, well, first of all, um, we know that Prince Hivi the Navigator was, was in charge of the expeditions down west coast of Africa. Now, I don't have any specific evidence that he was on any of these ships, but he coordinated it. He created schools for sellers. Mm-hmm. And the Portugal began to kind of master this, you know, um, you know the, the ocean, right? Um, they'd gotten a lot of the, the, the technologies from China, they learned it and they mastered it. So one of the things that he did, which is a very pivotal um, step that was taken in this process, when he was able to go and appeal to the Pope at the time. And he wanted to turn these expeditions because he saw it as being big into crusades. So wow. in 1441, we see um, papal boy Elias Qui pass by St. Eugene IV, basically giving him what they call um, plenary indulgence, which basically said, you have the right to go down West Africa and capture people. And any acts that you commit against God will be basically cleansed, taken away. And it was a document that was signed at that time. So we see a few more papal bulls passed. Um, Mm -hmm. Another one passed in 1452 by St. Nicholas V, basically giving um, um, Portugal at that time free reign to go down the west coast of Africa and capture human beings and turned um, what they call infidels and, and Saracens um, into perpetual servitude, uh, reduce their persons, like basically take everything they had. And those are the documents who really gave them the motivation. But it was stemmed from the concept that they saw them as being different. And they felt like they were doing them a favor by mm-hmm. capturing them and bringing them into Christianity or to Christ, as they would put it. So there, there you have it. That's why when we look at the cultural aspect of it, we still see, but we, if we don't see ideology that mm-hmm. is forming culture, we'll never be able to understand it from a cultural perspective because we'll just see cultural in this lens. But no, it's bigger, it's bigger than that, much broader. We have to mm-hmm. look at the ideology. So that's why. And so here's another thing, two things that are operating right now in our world. I'm gonna give you a personal story on this one. And I, I want yeah. people to really listen to this one because it's a personal story. Okay, sure. so I have high blood pressure, right? So mm-hmm. one of the things that, that I have to do is um, every year my doctor checks my, my kidney function because a lot of the medication um, affects your kidneys and also high blood pressure affects your kidneys in a negative way. I've had mm-hmm. high blood pressure since my late, since the, the, my late 20s. My, my parent, my mom had diabetes. My older sister has had diabetes before she passed. My older brother has diabetes. So anyway, 2010, you know, I started taking these tests or whatever. Um, and I didn't look at the data until recently. So every single year since about 2016, I've been going to the doctor taking tests. My kidneys are functioning really well. All right, so um, I took a test this past summer, August of 2021. And my scores came back at, I believe, 91. 
which said, basically saying my kidneys are functioning at 91%, which is excellent for my age, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I look back in 2010, when I took the same test, my number was 83, okay? Wow. So what would that make you think? If it was, if it was 83 in 2010, and in 2021 is 91, what would that make most people think? Uh, that, that you got healthier, right? Like, right, my kidneys mm-hmm. are getting better. Better. Mm-hmm. Right, okay, so here's the deal. When I took the test, and um, when I took the test in 2010, Kaiser did not classify me as a black person. But when wow. I took the test in 2021, because I came back to Kaiser at that time, I'm mm-hmm. now classified as a black person. Well, for black people in a medical profession for kidney testing, there's a thing called the EGFR number. Well, if you're black, you're, getting a, you're given a certain factor for anybody else. So I think your score is gonna be 1.2% higher um, than anybody else. And, they, and basically they, they function under the belief that people that are black or have any African blood in you have more dense muscle mass, wow. right? So what happens is this, I didn't really like, I didn't really understand this until I went to the doctor with my mom in 2014. The doctor says your kidneys are functioning at 13. 13%. I asked the doctor, I said, hey, um, what does this mean? He said, well, when it gets down around 10, your mom, we're going to have to be a little bit more aggressive as far as her medical care. She might have to go on dialysis or something like that. But right now it's at 13. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem. If my mom was already at, if she was at 13 and she's classified as black, our numbers go higher. So the doctor is looking at a number mm-hmm. that is not correct. So if she was a white person under the same, you know, condition, she would probably be under a 10 and already on dialysis. Does that make sense? That does. So so what happens is because we're black, our numbers are falsely increased, Mm -hmm. which, which, which hurts us when it's time for us to get, do things like get on the transplant list, Mm -hmm. really get the medical aggressive medical care that we need. So what happens is that there's racism in our medical, in the medical field, when it deals specifically with EGFR numbers, because they function under the false belief that black people or anybody with African blood has more dense muscle mass. I cover that in chapter two in the book. So um, it's really important that we understand that. So when I go to the doctor now, I'll say, hey, don't don't factor mine with that with that black factor for um, EGFR. I need to know the real deal, because my number is a, you know, if it's if my number is a fifteen, really, but you're telling me it's twenty. No, I need to know it to be fifteen. So I need to make sure that I cut back on certain foods. I need to make sure the medicine you're giving me is not causing, are going to mm-hmm. cause any additional damage. If your numbers go from twenty to fifteen, then our, the doctor might need to change your prescription. They might have to try a different medication. Wow. That's how racism is embedded in our system. I'm gonna give you one more quick that deals with ideology because I can give you a lot more. Mm-hmm. Ideology, if you, if, when we get off this call, if you go and you Google NFL and, mm-hmm. and um, race-based factoring, the NFL just settled for $1.2 billion about, about three months ago. Mm-hmm. What was happening is that they had retired football players, you know, 
black, mm -hmm. white, whatever you know, racial classification they had, they were basically filing suit against the NFL for um, things like CTE and dementia. Basically, okay. any type of cognitive, you know, functioning loss because of the, you know, playing football. So, you know, they play, say they play football and then after football, you know, people are having like brain damage, they're having memory loss, dementia, other things that football could have caused, they were filing suit. The NFL made doctors use a different factor for blacks. Wow. And they made them use a different factor for blacks because they their rationale was that we don't know if they had low cognitive functioning before they even played football. So if you go and you Google that, you'll see the article written by the Associated Press. They settled. The NFL basically said, you all caught us. We, we, you know, we were at fault. Yeah, right. We did that. We're sorry. We're going to settle for $1 billion. So what was happening is that the Black players were getting their claims denied because they're saying, well, we don't know if you had low cognitive functioning before you played football. So basically saying, you must have been dumb. You could have been dumb before you even played football. Wow. And the NFL were forcing doctors to use a different factor when they dealt with Blacks. So ideological racism is operating and functioning in our world. And we got to understand the ideology behind it because the ideology operates under the, the false um, claim that Black people are different um, based on our biological structure and because of skin color, um, we are subhuman. And we have mm -hmm. to be able to understand that how that ideology operates and informs other layers of racism. So that's what I, what I really try to establish in the book. I give examples of that, but how do we get through that? Mm -hmm. Well, the University of Washington basically said, we're not using that race-based factor anymore because race has nothing to do with kidney function. NYU basically did the same thing. University of Maryland did the same thing. They basically said, this is racism and we're not gonna do it anymore. So what they had to do is come up with a different way of determining kidney function and it had nothing to do with race, which it doesn't. How can you tell me because I'm black, I'm more muscular than a person who is of another, uh, what they call race, just by the color of my skin, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Wow. So those are those are ideological racist um, things that we'll see. I'll cover that in chapter two in the book. I know I just talked a long, uh, a long mm -hmm. time, but if you have any other questions, no, no, uh, feel free to ask, man. No, that was uh, that was very interesting. Like I, I've heard before, I used to follow this guy on Instagram who's uh, becoming a doctor, and he, he he's black, and he wanted to shed light on like the prejudices in the mm -hmm. medical field. Um, within the black community or, you know, that's done to the black community. So like something you just mentioned, you know, how they judge uh, kidney functions based on race. That's, there's, so, there's so many medical misconceptions out there um, based on race. It's, it's scary. It's honestly, it's very scary, especially, especially when it comes to, you know, ideological functions like that like how you mentioned but I don't know I feel like maybe maybe the first step to 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 achieving um to achieving uh, anti-racism is maybe education amongst uh, the black community 
um, you know, in those areas. I agree. I agree. I think um, I agree totally. I think one of the first things is to, to establish what racism is. I call yeah. racism, I define it as a, a social politically constructed system of inequity. Mm -hmm. I know that's kind of long, but a, a social politically mm -hmm. uh, um, system of inequity, which basically means that, you know, if we don't understand the political side, Dorothy Roberts says that it is a, it is a political system that sorts human beings based on um, invented biological demarcations. Racism was invented and it was invented and, and I'm gonna be honest with you. So it, it, the ide ideological part of it was, was began to establish in, um, in Portugal, right? Other areas of Europe in, in the 1400s, we saw that happening. Yeah. Um, you know, and then we see as we move through the, the, the centuries we see in 1607 when when they founded Jamestown, you know, there were, mm -hmm. there, were there were believed to be 20 Africans on, on the boat when they came. Um, there were also some indentured servants. We saw that we, we, we read and look at the documentation of how people were treated in early colonial history in Virginia. There are claims that the the African um, laborers and also the 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 English laborers were, were basically treated the same. The only thing that really separated the two was that the, the, the English indentured servants were under land, con uh, were under indentured contracts. So they had some rights, right? Mm. So when they were to work their contract off, they were to get land, they were to get weapons, they were to get, you know, corn, they were to get all things to, to help them start. The Africans, a lot of the Africans were not able to do that. Um, in 1676, very pivotal part, point in American history that we're not talking about is the Nathaniel Bacon Rebellion. When Nathaniel Bacon, who was a white landowner, basically had African and he had English laborers on his land. And um, he was in constant conflict with the natives because they wanted to move more west and take more land and the natives were resisting. He reached out to the, the governor of Virginia at the time, who was actually his cousin by the name of William Barclay, and they got into an argument. And we know this because of the letter that his wife wrote to her cousin, William Barclay. We, we see the evidence in the letter that she wrote. And she mm -hmm. talked about how one of um, Nathaniel Bacon's overseers were killed by a Native American. So they got really upset, you know, and upset because of the natives were resisting, they were fighting back and killing off some of their people and killing some of their cattle. But also that William Barclay was not giving them the okay and the support to go move on the Native Americans and kill them. Mm -hmm. So Nathaniel Bacon and his group of, of whites or I'm not gonna call them white because they weren't white yet. They were called, they were called English laborers, mm -hmm. their indentured servants and the Africans, they rebelled as a group. So they started taking out Native Americans, you know, uh, and then they eventually went to the house of Burgesses, Burgesses which was the, the capital of Virginia at the time because the United States was not a, a country at that point. They were just these, these colonies set up. They burned mm -hmm. it down. Wow. Well. Virginia had to reach out to Britain and say, hey, we need some help because we've lost control of the colony. Well, they sent some people, they sent some, some soldiers or whatever from, from, uh, from England to come down and assist. And here's something very important that happened because there's no documentation at this time based on the work of Theodore Allen and um, Jack, Jacqueline Bartolar that in no document at that particular time in 1676 that any group called themselves in, in this country white. They were, English, they were English people 
and they call themselves Christian. Because what some of the Africans were doing, they were like, you know what, if, if, if it means that I just need to become a Christian and y'all quit putting this whip on my back and then I'll do it. So a lot of them were becoming Christian, right? And they were kind mm-hmm. of getting this, this kind of this special treatment. So anyway, 1676, um, Great Britain, you know, provides support, they get here. And one of the generals by the name of General Graham, I, I put this in the book too. He looks out because they're trying to quell this thing. These people are out of control. He documents this by saying, I see Africans and Englishmen working together. Wow. Right? Because they were revolting. They were, they were, this is a rebellion. They burned down the Capitol. And he said, so they end up taking it under control. And they said, we need to institute some type of like system here to make sure this doesn't happen again. So what they did is that they started elevating any person that was considered white, excuse me, from Europe to be called white. And they elevated their status above any person that was African because as I said, the documentation shows that the Africans and the the indentured service were treated mainly the same. Mm -hmm. At that point, things changed. We see that it was illegal for Africans at that point after 1676 to carry weapons. Uh, it was against the law for any um, English woman to marry an African because she basically would forfeit her freedom and her children would, would, would be um, enslaved. Wow. Uh, any person who was African could never bring up any charges against any bird English person in court. Um, any English person who in the process of trying to control an African, and you kill that person, you cannot have charges brought up against you. So when we bring this thing forward in 1982, when I got pulled over by a police officer, mm-hmm. he's operating under a culture that has been informed and fed by an ideology. So wow. I began to even excuse the behavior as I began to understand this, my anger should not be at the officer, it should be at the system because the system supports this type of thinking this ideology, and eventually the actions come with the ideology. So when we look at racism as we know it, after that we began to see, because the Irish were not considered white initially, you know, their, their whiteness didn't come until later on. Mm-hmm. So um, we stopped seeing, um, in the documentation, we stopped seeing English people calling themselves English people, they start calling themselves white. They stopped calling themselves Christian in their documentation, start calling themselves white. And that's where racism was formed. And it was, it was began to be, uh, uh, they tried to justify it through these false, um, basically um, scientific claims we see in the 1700s by, 1817, 1800s by people like Carl Linnaeus who began to separate people based on their origin or their culture. He, he basically classified us in four different categories and then, that's kind of how we see it, it went from the, the 1400s trying to use religion as a way to create this difference. And then we see in the 16 and 1700s, it shifts from this religion, religious differences now to scientific or biological differences, um, which all of it is false. So that's where racism comes from. So that's why I call it a social politically constructed system of inequity. There's no such thing as racial equality because when you say race, you're already talking about difference. You can't have racial equality because that's an oxymoron when you put the two words together. Race uh-huh. means difference. It means upper lower. It means 
rich, poor. It means white, black. It means that. How can you have equality if you already said something is different? So um, that's what the book tackles and it helps you kind of understand um, and see uh, racism as a, a complex system of inequity. Um, and it gives you certain strategies and activities to begin to think about it uh, in five different categories with the hope of being able to deconstruct and dismantle it when you see it operating. Wow, that's deep. I didn't even know about that um, about that part of history. Wow, right, I gotta look more into that. Yeah, it's in the book. You can check it out in the book. I've just seen y'all a copy, man. If you um, <laughs> um, definitely yeah. want, want you guys because I think you you have to. So when I have former students who call me and say, "Mr. McMillan, um, can you help me? I'm at this university and." You know, every time me and my roommate comes in, the RA checks us and asks us questions, and but they don't ask ask anybody else questions. I'm feeling like I'm being pressured because I'm black. Mm -hmm. So I have to explain to them, like, listen, like, yeah, you need to address this, but understand that this person might be operating under an ideology where they believe they're supposed to do that to you. Because anything that is different, just like if you're walking down the street right now and you saw. And I'm just going to be very honest. I think when you talk about difference, they, they began to believe that Africans were subhuman. And that helped them with the cognitive dissonance to say, well, if they're, if they're subhuman, then we are, if, if, we, if we bring them to us and we teach them, we give them language, we do all this for them and we bring them into this religion. And I'm not bashing any religion. I'm just talking about the documentation tells us and how it was used. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's 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 how they that's how they thought back then. And this is just a system that was created to justify that behavior. Because that there's no reason how reason why that that or no way that behavior can be justified other than saying there's some benefit in us doing this to these people. And it's bigger than just, you know, having land or having riches or having gold or, or stealing their diamonds It's really for them. It was a bigger thing, and it's in the documentation. Uh, Papal Bull, Ilias Qui, 1441. Dom de Versus, 1452, St. Nicholas V. St. Nicholas V also did uh, Ramona's Pentefects, um, 14, excuse me, 1455. Those are in the book. You can look at them, you can Google it, and just look at the, listen to the language and how these things were, were these ideas were and these these commands, right? It was it wasn't just we're gonna go over here and take their stuff. It was almost like, no, God has told us to do this. Wow. This is the work we have to do. So mm. when you start to look at that part of it, you begin to understand, oh, now I can see why Christopher Columbus was so ruthless. Yeah. Now I can see why that person who called himself a landowner or a master was so ruthless. I can see why, you know, um, you know, Nixon in 1972 said that he has a great affinity for the blacks, but they're not going anywhere in 500 years. And you know that too, but the Mexicans are a different cup of tea. But the current wow. time they steal and they, they're cheaters, but they don't live like a bunch of dogs as the Negroes do live. Nixon said that in 1972. Wow, I didn't even know that. You know what I mean? <laughs> so they're, they're so when you when you begin to, kind of really dig into this work, it really begins to uncover the ugliness of humanity, but there are also so many great things that so many different types of Americans or uh, people across the world, across these racial 
lines that were created have done to fight for humanity and to ensure that this country lived up to what it was supposed to be about, uh, which was hopefully equality for all people. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's the hope. And this is not really identifying or looking at a particular group of people in a negative way. It's mm-hmm. just looking at the history and looking at individual players within these racial lines who have created um, this thing called racism. But I think, you know, we've seen some, we've seen great progress over the years. We've seen some amazing things happen. We've seen people like um, Chief Justice um, um, uh, Harlan in 1896, who was a former um, owner of human beings who had the mm-hmm. one dissenting voice in the Plessy versus Ferguson case of 1896, who basically said, I don't know if color is gonna be a significant part of our future. It might even be to a point to where, you know, uh, we, not, we might not be able to resolve this thing between the color you know, of people. But he said the constitution is colorblind. We have to look at that as being, you know, we have to set precedence through this constitution. Mm-hmm. So for him to say that in 1896, the only dissenting voice in a major case that impacts civil rights Thurgood Thurgood Marshall used that in 1954 case of Brown versus the board Mm -hmm. and overturned 1896 case. So we've seen so many instances, so many examples of people across all cultural or racial lines that they made up who have contributed to humanity in great ways. Mm -hmm. So it's not really about, yeah, it's really not about the color of your skin, but you, you mix that in American history, we see that a lot of it had to do with that. So it's something we have to address um, because we have to dismantle the systems that were created and based on this ideology. Okay, wow, wow, that's that's a lot. I'm deaf. I got. I got. I got to check this book out. I feel <laughs> like I feel like uh, there, there's so much I need to so much I need to know. So much I need to catch up on when it comes to this. Um. And I thought, you know, I mean, I had some, I had some, uh, some ideas here and there about, you know, racism in America, but you give the full on, the full on uh, unedited version. I like that. It's, it's very deep. Um, I think you enjoy it. It's, it's an easy read. It's an easy read. And it's just really. Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. Um, doesn't it, doesn't it like, uh, you know what? When, when these things happen, though, you know, doesn't it bother you? How do you how do you cope with that? Mm. How do you cope with? Okay, yeah, this is this is how it is in America. This is how they're thinking. But you know, is that you know to some people, you know, to some right. people, you could you could understand like where they're coming from, you right. know. But to other people who don't know that, who don't know what you know. You know, and they just think what they're being attacked because they're black and this isn't fair. So I have to act like this. I have to do that. You know, how do you, do you have any advice for that? Well, wow, that's that's a man. You have some loaded questions today. And uh, <laughs> first of all, it's been a great conversation. I just really yeah. appreciate you guys bringing me on. Um, I have confidence in people, man. I believe that there's a power greater than us. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I call that power God. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe there's there's nothing on this earth that God did not put in place. Mm-hmm. I don't believe when people say things like, and this is just me, and I'm not, you know, and I'm just trying to be as genuine and authentic as possible. I can't sit here and say and believe and practice that there's a chosen people. Yeah. Right. And and not treat everybody the same. Mm-hmm. I believe that there's there's opportunity for us to create a reality and shape a reality that we can all imagine to be um, the best for humanity. Mm-hmm. That That is one that allows people to be able to interact with one another in the most genuine ways, regardless of um, this, this, this crafted and this invented system of racism that has caused all of us to believe that there are differences in people and these differences are something that is that is innate in you, that was born in you, that you can't change. I don't believe that to be true. I just cannot believe it. I can't believe that um, that another human being was born and smarter than me. Mm-hmm. That if a person created, if there's a force that I call God, other people might call it other things, that created me, and you created me in a world, and there are other people that you put before me. How can you love me? How can I claim? to be something that's created by you and your image, but also believe that there's another human being based on the color of your skin. You created me in a curse. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that to be true. I believe there are systems who control how we think, what we say, what we write, uh, Mm -hmm. our experiences. And I think it's our goal, and I think it should be our goal for us to figure out how we can have an impact on the world that's going to be lasting to bring people more together than to separate us. So I believe when you, when you have those instances, I think if you're aware of what's really operating, what's going on, I think you have a better way of, of at least dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are times when people, you know, people, you know, called, you know, I've had, you know, very similar experiences as most people that are, that are color um, of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think having a really good understanding of what I'm dealing with will help me deal with the situation. I'll give you another example. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife and I, fourth grade, my son was in the fourth grade. We get a call. Um, teacher says that he's, you know, we need to talk about his behavior in class. We go meet with her. Um, she is not a black teacher. Um, the school is very much, well, it's mainly African-American. She tells mm-hmm. us that our son is too aggressive on the playground. And we said, okay, well, so what's going on? Explain to us what's going on. She said, well, he wants to win all the time. He's too competitive. Wow. So I said, what do you, what do you mean by that? I mean, you know, he plays competitive baseball. You know, he's, I've been coaching him since he was six years old. We go out of town, we, we play, he's doing really well. This mm-hmm. is kind of who he is. So we had a really good conversation about that. So I had to inform her, and this is in chapter five in the book, this is on the cultural racism, because I talk about that in the book also. Mm-hmm. I actually, you'll see the pictures and I actually draw up the scenario very similar to what we had to experience. Mm-hmm. So the reality is that she knew nothing about how to really support the cultural needs of African-American children. Mm-hmm. So in talking to the principal who was African-American, I was very clear to her that I don't want to get another call about my son being competitive. He doesn't have to change anything. If he's not hurting anybody, you can definitely teach him. You can help shape his experience. You can help him get better. You can tell him to be more, um, you know, celebrate 
his classmates just as much as he does himself. If you want to, you can do all of that, but you're not mm -hmm. calling me and telling me there's a discipline issue when there's no discipline issue. I'm not going to, I'm not going to allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, if, if, because I've seen it from the other end, I get kids, I used to be an assistant principal. I used to deal with discipline. So I had a lot of kids coming to my office for issues like that. And I had to sit down and tell teachers like, no, we need to have a conversation. No, you need to suspend him. He needs to be suspended or she needs to be suspended. I said, wait yeah. a minute. I said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna just suspend a child based on your word. I gotta give that kid an opportunity for them to express themselves because it's, it's important to me that they feel valued, appreciated and recognized just as much as you do. Mm -hmm. So I bring the two together. I got a kid sitting over here and I have a, an adult sitting over here. And I say, okay, who wants to go first? Tell me what you what happened. And nine times out of 10, um, those ended, you know, really well where, you know, the adult had to realize that this kid's voice is important, how they mm -hmm. feel is important. Their, their social emotional health is important. Their self-awareness is important. All these other things, their, their cognitive development is important. But also you need to treat this, this person as a human being. This is not a, now if, if the kid went against some rule, we can talk about that. Mm -hmm. But I'm not gonna just go based on your word that this individual you know, uh, misbehaved and, and you need to tell me what, how I need to handle with the behavior because ultimately we wanna change behavior. Sometimes just suspending the kid is not changing behavior. So one of the things we had to do at the high school level is we had, we saw a lot of kids um, like exploring vape pens and stuff about three or four years ago, it was just out of control. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we were initially, you know, we, we were kind of punitive about that. Like, hey, you don't do that, da da da, you're gonna get it suspended, you're gonna have a Saturday school or whatever. We started realizing, are we really helping children? So we're about to suspend a kid and we write in a behavior contract that you need to, instead of suspending you, I'm gonna give you one more chance I'm going to write up a behavior contract and say, if we catch you on this again, we can suspend you. So if I wrote that contract up for two different kids, one kid has a family who has you know, medical care, who's already under counseling, that mm -hmm. kid can get that help immediately. They can call the counselor and say, hey, I need you to add you know, drug counseling to that, you know, the kid's you know, um, counseling session. A kid who doesn't have insurance, that might have to take three, four weeks before they get help. Two days later, the kid on the left who already has health care and set up and counseling sessions set up has already mm -hmm. gotten help. The kid on the right has to wait three or four weeks. Two days later, both kids back in my office. What do I do? Right. Well, mm -hmm. The kid on the left says, here's my letter basically saying, you know, I got counseling. Boom. Your behavior contract has been fulfilled. Next kid comes in. What's going on? Well, my mother called and said, you know, they said, you know, we got to it's going like a 60 day wait. But where's the help now? We can't, it was, it was an inequity issuing contracts that we said as a school, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna create our own session right here on Saturdays and pay a teacher extra to teach drug counseling on Saturday mornings. So all kids had access to it. So that's how we deal with inequities that we face. We, we figure out, and that's what I try to work with you through the book, like thinking of ways to get rid of inequities. Racism is a major, you see inequities, you know, you see it, you see them come through racism all the time, but what about gender inequities? What about, you know, all other types of inequities, height inequities, things like that. Um, so we try to look at all situations like that and, 
and figure out how can we make sure all kids get the, the same experience, uh, the same supports in place. Um, and what, that's how I, I look at racism, ensuring that all people have access to um, all the things that they need and try to eliminate racism from stopping them from um, experiencing humanity at a high level. So that's, that's kind of my goal in the book to get us to begin to think about that. Okay, okay. Wow, that's, uh, that's really deep. That's interesting, super interesting conversation we're having right now. Um, let's see, a couple more questions here. And I'll make these short, the answers. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no problem. I've learned a lot, honestly. I've learned a lot through our conversation just now, man. I just want to That's thank great. you for that. Thank you for that. I, Anytime. I'm really, I'm really going to check this book out, and we, we need a part two, that's for sure. Okay. I, I want to read through this, and I want to be able to, to to share more share more of these ideas I have as well with the with like racism in society and how people view like different cultures, you know, especially how black people view themselves as a culture. Yes. Yeah. Yes. In America. Um, you know, one, one of the biggest, one of the biggest problems, you know, I, I think I feel too is like uh, how we mentioned how black people view themselves as, Hey, we had to, we had to act this way and we had to be this way. And that's considered black, you know, but if you're if you're this way and this way, if you're like educated and you, you pronounce all your words, you know, and you and you um, you know you like a certain thing, you know, you're not considered black. You know, how do you how do you feel about that? And have you have any experience with that at all? I know I know you came from Compton, um, and uh, you probably are friends. Do you? Do you ever feel like so, sometimes your your friends or people from Compton kind of judge you? Like, oh, why are you? That's a good point. Why are you doing this? Why are you? Yeah, that's not black. Well, that's you know, of... yeah. I I, I I mean, I really uh, great question. We can go and talk a lot about this. I'm gonna try to keep it as short as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, I, and I'm going to give you for, for, from a Compton perspective, because I grew up here in Compton. Uh, I grew up in a community, again, 90, 95% African-American, two-parent households. Most of the people moved here in 1953. Um, there were new bills. Um, so I saw so many positive things, very nurturing environment. You know, fourth grade, I learned the Black National Anthem. Uh, we learned Langston Hughes poems. We knew who the, the Harlem Renaissance was all about. Where did you go to? Um, where did you go to elementary school? I went to El Segundo Elementary, which is called Ronald McNair now, and I went to Vanguard Middle School. Okay. And then okay. I went to um, Bourbon Day High School, nice. um, which is in Watts. It's an all private. High, it's a private high school, all boys, about three hundred boys. So great school. But anyway, like, um, so I saw so many things. So many intelligent, smart people, man. So many resilient people. Mm -hmm. So. I never felt like, like, I never felt like um, anybody shamed me for well, wanting to be like, you know, the top of the class. I ended up being the valid, co-valedictorian in my class in 1980. I can't tell, I can't tell the year. <laughs> uh, at Verb Day High School. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, I, and I think like, there's, there's so much about growing up in a, in a, some more, a supportive community. I never felt like anybody looked at me in a different way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the guys who perhaps went a, a different route in life and uh, may not be with here us with here uh, us uh, anymore. Those individuals, some a lot of them were intelligent, just smart people, like very intelligent. Mm-hmm. So um, close friend of mine, the dude was sharp, man, and I just. I just think sometimes we get that, you know, that negative um, stigma associated with Compton mm-hmm. um, so many times, but no one has made me feel like, you know, I think I'm better than anybody else because I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, money, degrees, I don't have a lot, you know, I'm not a rich person, I'm not a millionaire, mm-hmm. but I am aligned with my purpose. And I think that makes me rich. Mm-hmm. You know, I know what my purpose is on this earth. And I think, that's one of the biggest challenges for us is not to fall for the okie doke and think that you got to be on somebody else's path in order for you to, to reach success. Mm-hmm. I believe what, what um, Earl Nightingale says, we says success is a progressive realization of a worthy idea. So mm-hmm. am I going to be successful today? And can I live in that success today? My success is not determined by anybody else but me. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no scoreboard that I hold over my head. Like I got to make a certain amount of money. I got to get this in order to be successful. Mm-hmm. I was successful in that classroom that I talked to you about when I changed the curriculum for that kid. I just didn't go far enough to make institutional change, but mm-hmm. I was successful in that moment. We're successful right now because we're talking about things that we feel are going to impact people in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, the challenge I think we, a lot of us face is that we don't align with our purpose. We're afraid to answer the question, why mm-hmm. am I here? That question a lot of times gets ignored. I was able to finally confront my, myself and look in the mirror and answer that question, you know, about four or five years ago. Why am I here? What do I need to do? And here's a, a major question I think young people should ask themselves. And this is the question that's gonna help you de- determine what your purpose is. When you're 80 years old and you're looking back on your life, what is the one thing that if you don't do in life that you're gonna regret? Or you didn't do in life that you're gonna regret? And for me, it was writing books. Mm-hmm. If I reach 80 years old and I look back and say, oh, man, I should have wrote that book I always thought about. Well, I'm writing them. So I'm successful, right? I'm living in my dream right now, mm-hmm. living in it. And I think we need, to, we, need to, we need to grasp that. We need to hold on to that. We need to ask ourselves these questions. Sometimes it takes a long time because life's going to take you on some trips. But if you answer that question, the sooner you answer that question, because I didn't ask that, ask that question at 30 or 40 or 45, I got like 46, 47, got to a point like, man, I'm tired of this, man. I need to be real about who I am and what I want to get accomplished before I leave this earth. Yeah. So I think that is one of the things that, so when that happens, you're running your own lane. Mm -hmm. You got blinders on now because the finish line is your finish line. Mm -hmm. The hurdle is your hurdle. You choose what hurdles you want to go over to get to what you want. You don't have to jump in nobody else's lane and try to jump over their hurdle. That's their hurdle. Exactly. So, you know what I mean? So those are things I, I like to talk to young people about. Um, but I grew up in a, at a time where I think people celebrated when they saw something in you mm-hmm. that was different. Teachers telling me that you're going to be a writer one day in the fourth grade. 
my English teacher, I talked to him. He's a superintendent back in Massachusetts now. Mm-hmm. He said, you're a great writer. You can write. I said, okay, I'm going to do that one day. But I didn't start doing it until I was in my 30s. You know what I mean? So, so it, it's, it's really getting to that point in life where you feel like I'm aligned with what I need to do. Somebody told me, I heard somebody said something about me about 30 years ago. He said, man, why is Teddy out here teaching, man? He, they don't, teachers don't make a lot of money. I thought he was going to be an attorney or something. <laughs> Joke's on him. Because as long as I was in my purpose, I'm a success in that moment. It didn't matter what everybody thought I needed to be doing. I was doing what I needed to do to get to where I needed to go. And I'm right where I need to be right now at my age to do what I need to do in order to fill my goal and assignment on this earth. Exactly. You're just just completely confident in yourself and in your purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's amazing. That's amazing. Because we we kind of have a similar experience. I have a lot of good friends. um, I grew grew up in South Central. So I went to school out there elementary school my whole school was 99 percent black i i didn't like uh i didn't run into you know maybe a person who wasn't black until i got to middle school so that was a culture shock culture shock for me in a sense but but i did grow up in like a we focused on education you know we focused on um on like learning black history Mm. you know, the Black National Anthem, like you said as well. Um, so, yeah, and I knew all that, you know, I came from those backgrounds. I also came from a background where both my parents were immigrants, you know? Okay. So, uh, I, I was able to, and, you know, them being them, they focused on, like, um, uh, you know, education, you know, mm. speaking, speaking a certain way, speaking, yep. you know, uh, proper and, and being this and being that, but I, I, I'm so grateful for like all my experiences because I was telling Tiffany the other day that like all these experiences, you know, it made me who I am and you know confident in who I am and in what I want to do, you know, in my yeah. path, you know. Okay. So I always felt that. Yeah, so what you said right there was exactly what I was thinking. And I appreciate you for mentioning that as well, you know, because, you know, these days, um, these days, it's like, oh, you know, why do you, you sometimes get a lot, like, I, I don't get it that much, you know, but like, uh, but I know there are certain like African-American kids, you know, that, that are into into things that, you know, aren't considered, you know, quote unquote, black culture. Yep. You know, maybe some kids, maybe some kids are into, I don't know, maybe they're into like golf, you know, maybe they're into like anime, you know, and, you know, they're being, you know, persecuted for, you know, not being black, you know, I, I, I know a few young kids that, you know, have interests in what people think are, are, are white things, you know, so, um, I always try to tell them, hey, you know, just be confident in in, in what you like, what you want to do. You know, there's there's nothing that labels that should be put a label on, on on that just because of the color of your skin. You're right, man. And man, I I'm glad you said that. I have a son who's 18 years old, 
Mm-hmm. And um, he played football. He played baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he really likes skateboarding, right? He's in yeah. college now. He goes to Long Beach City College. He has his own car, has his own job. Mm-hmm. You know, very, you know, he's successful. He makes beats too. But mm-hmm. man, he keeps a skateboard in his trunk and he goes to the skate park. Okay. You know? So my point is like, be yourself. Like, yeah. for me, it was like, like, I like going to, I like reading. Every time you, you might see me walking through the mall with a book in my back pocket. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I buy books that, that are small so I can put them in my back pocket because I got them all in my car. Whenever I'm somewhere, it's the time my wife goes to Costco or Sam's Club, I'm sitting in the car reading. Or, mm-hmm. you know, um, if that's what I like to do. But I think mm-hmm. that's part of the whole narrative too. Like, if we know who we are and we know that our existence did not start here in America, we know about people like Imhotep, who was the first, considered the, the world's first genius. We know mm-hmm. that the, the Great Pyramids were built by Egyptian people who were, who were people that in Africa. We know Egypt is in Africa. If we know the history of the, the, the Nubian empires, we know mm-hmm. the history of who we are, then I don't care what anybody says to you. You know who you are. I've never, now, when I went to middle school, that's where I met uh, uh, Tiff's father, uh, Sean Epps. Actually, I met him before then. We were, I used to go to the park, Enterprise Park as a kid. I played baseball there, knew a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, went to middle school, um, had to walk about a mile and a half to get to middle school through about two different neighborhoods to get there with my friends. The pressures were there, but I grew up at a time, fortunately, where um, the game banging part, people respected you for who you were. You didn't have to associate with the gang to feel like you were down. I heard somebody on a podcast about a month ago, and I was like, these people, they don't understand it, man. The brother said that he was game banging as a kid. And they mm-hmm. said, well, did this other person game back? He said, no, he was he was a mark. He didn't game back. He was a mark. Yeah. I'm like, are you serious? So they're only, so we're either going to be a game banger or a mark. I said, they they got the game all screwed up. Yeah. Sorry. I can tell you, my the neighbor who grew up across the street from me is, was a pilot. Mm-hmm. You know, my brother who grew up in the household with me, my brothers and sisters are all successful people. My yeah. next door neighbors, my, my street, we were all, but none of us. And, and the people that that went down that path in a lot of ways, you know, um, they look back at that time and say, you know what? Those probably weren't good decisions I made. Yeah. The association with that wasn't a good thing. I got a buddy right now that I talked to sometime who, who was in jail. He's in prison for a long time. And we talk every so often. And we talk about those moments when we were in the seventh or eighth grade those pivotal mm-hmm. times, but he always goes back to, man, I wish I, I had made that decision. Yeah. So my point is like, knowing who you are, loving who you are, and not allowing people to impose their ideas on you, mm-hmm. part of manhood. It's a part of being a woman. It's a part of being a man. It's a part of standing up and saying, no, this goodness is, this is who I am. Yeah. I gotta walk around here with a Compton hat on and to say I'm from Compton, you Thanks. know, I, I, I coach baseball in Compton. My baseball team, you know, I played baseball here. I represented this city well, so I put in work for the city in that way. <laughs> yeah. I put in work for my community by helping children, by, you know, trying to, to, to give them opportunities to have access to programs that's going to help them develop, um, exactly. into, you know, productive people. By building up. Work. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so being yourself, um, and it's not to look down on anybody because 
again, the, the people that they call gang members, I know these, I know people as human beings. Mm -hmm. I know them as people. Some very, very intelligent, very smart. Some might be considered friends. Yeah. So I'm not looking at them and putting them in a category and say, oh, these, these are these are vicious human beings and they shouldn't be. No, that's not what this thing is about. This is about understanding people, building people up, getting through to them so they can see who they are at the very core and, and begin to kind of speak to that, the goodness that all that we all bring, that we all bring to the table. So, man, that was a uh, I'm glad you were able to share that, you know, yeah. but but stand on your path, knowing who you are. Like, I don't have to legitimize myself to anybody, prove myself. Yeah, exactly. to I don't want to fight. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry for stepping on your, your shoes. If I do, I'm walking away. I don't need to prove that to nobody. I don't that, want to get into no conflict. My mm -hmm. wife is not going to call me a punk if I don't want to fight nobody. Now, if, she, if there's something I got to fight, I'm going to fight. But it has exactly. to be a situation where I feel like that's the only option I have. You know what I mean? I'm not going to sit yeah. up here and nobody run over me or my, anybody in my family, but I'm still not looking for no trouble. Exactly. You know I mean? So, but I know a lot of people who live in that same mindset. So, the the um, I think that the important thing is for us to to just just be aware of who we are. You know, making sure we stay away from triggers, things that might trigger us um, into being disingenuous to who we are, or doing things or acts that we don't necessarily would do when we're um, in a good state of mind. Things like that. Just just knowing who you are, and that's self awareness. That's part of social emotional learning. Like for me, um, I don't like to see like children abused in any way. Like I know that. Like I don't like the feeling of a woman uh, being uh, unprotected. I just yeah. that just that's something that kind of eats away at me. So um, whenever I have an opportunity to to help children, I do. Whenever ever have have an opportunity to encourage um, people, I do. That's just a part of who I am. So and also letting people know you know, you're great as you are. You don't have to be. The most powerful words in the human language are two words and only three characters. And that those two words are I am. Two most mm -hmm. powerful words in the English language, I am. And whatever comes at, after that is who you are. And if we affirm that daily and we allow people to speak to that, we allow ourselves to live in that space and, 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 and take up all that energy we're going to eventually see that come to reality, whatever that is. Whether you say, I am a supportive father. You can't say that and not be a supportive father. That means you should be a better listener. You should be a better uh, at, uh, you should have more compassion for people. You should be present in their lives. You should be able to speak to their own greatness. You should be able to speak to them in a way that's respectful and encouraging and recognized in their humanity. So using those two words and whatever you put after that is who you're going to be and who you are. That's just, it's as simple as that. So um, don't try to stay, I mean, stay who you are. Don't try to be anybody else. Be yourself, be genuine um, to who you are, genuine to who you are. Don't allow other people to impose their ideas of views on you if they don't, aren't things that, that align with who you are in so your purpose. Amen. Amen. Thank you, thank you for that. You're quite welcome. Yeah, Teddy, that was uh, that was a, we had a great great conversation just now. Um, I felt like my mind was open even more. So, 
with all the information you gave me. I'm definitely getting your book. I'm going to be reading it. We have a part two, maybe even a part three on this because I want to continue this. Absolutely. I really definitely. appreciate it. Thanks a lot. I'm open whenever you guys want to want to mm-hmm. chat again. Uh, this has been absolutely fulfilling for me also. Mm-hmm. Um, I thank you for, um, for, for reaching out and wanting me to be a part of your program. Anytime I'm available or anything I need to, to do the, to, to, to further um, impact people, I'm here for you. Yeah, we're grateful. We're grateful you, you, you can talk, talk with us. Um, I'm going to, uh, we're going to end it. We're going to end it. Uh, I'm going to do the ending. This is abundance of knowledge and everything's going to be, I'm going to say this is abundance of this has been abundance of knowledge. And then you're just going to say, and everything's going to be a okay. Okay. This has been an abundance of knowledge and and everything's going to be. You want me to say that part? Oh yeah. yeah, Go for it. Go for it. (laughs) This (laughs) this has been abundance of knowledge and. And everything's going to be okay. A okay. And everything's going to be a okay. There we go. Thank you. Thank you, Teddy. Thank you so much. You're welcome, man. Great talking to you. Great talking to you as well. We're going to talk soon. I, All right, I have a good one. Take care.